Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're talking the uh, past, present of MFT education uh, with someone that's been everywhere and pretty much done it all, Dr. Fred Piercy. He's busier in retirement, ladies and gentlemen, than most of you are in your day jobs. Piercy received his bachelor's degree from Wake Forest University, a master's from the University of South Carolina, and a PhD from the University of Florida. He's worked in MFT doctoral programs at East Texas State, Purdue, and Virginia Tech. And at Virginia Tech, he served as a department head and an associate dean. Fred is the author or co-author of an astounding 183 articles and book chapters, seven standalone books, and 45 funded grants. Dr. Piercy has held key leadership positions in the AAMFT. He's been on the national board twice. He's been on the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education. And most recently, he served an excellent term as the editor of JMFT. That's our flagship journal, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. It's the largest circulation family therapy journal in the world. Fred's taught both undergraduate and graduate courses on addiction, professional writing, among others. He was an advisor to many doctoral students, helping him prepare for careers in university and clinical settings all over the country. And of his many accolades... Fred has received the 2007 Outstanding Contribution to Marriage and Family Therapy Award from the AMFT, the 2013 Kathleen Briggs Outstanding Mentoring Award from the National Council on Family Relations, and the 2014 American Family Therapy Academy Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, it is a great honor to welcome Fred Piercy to the podcast. Okay, I am really pleased to be joined by Dr. Fred Piercy today on the AAMFT podcast. And, and Fred, you are unique, not only your longevity in the field, but your parts as uh, your, your ability to contextualize the field, both from a MFT educational perspective and uh, a MFT research. Um, so I am really excited to, to talk to you. And the first question we always ask people, Fred, and I actually do not know this, how did you get interested in the profession, um, and what led you to MFT? Basically, a lot of things have happened in my life that I didn't get one thing, and then I went in another direction. So I was not wanting to be in the Army, and uh, I was drafted, and I did have a master's degree, so I had some background in testing, psychological testing, and I wanted to be in that part of the mental health clinic. 
but they didn't need anybody, so they put me in the child guidance clinic. So, so where geographically, where are we at this time? Frank? We are in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I got a ton of experience with kids and families in the army, and they sent me to Korea, and I continued to have some interesting experiences, which made me look good for a Ph.D. program and also made me interested in... Uh, I remember at Fort Benning going to a workshop in which Virginia's tear hugged me. So that's a... Well, I didn't say that was special, but she hugged everybody, Frank. <laughs> yeah, she, she yeah. hugged everybody, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, she, and I'm 6'4", and she wasn't that much smaller than me. In your opinion, what do you think are the biggest changes... And we'll start with talking about MFT education um, and the way we train therapists from when you began and uh, where we are now. There's a, a paradigm that we had way back when, which was to teach models of family therapy, and they were kind of the superstars, and you taught what those individuals believed and how they did therapy and uh, modeled therapy after them. And then at some point you... We, uh, got into skills instead of what, what you instead of inputs we looked at outputs what family therapists could actually do and I think we're in that process right now I, let me add, add another one because I was thinking about this the other day uh, I also think the field has been become a little more humane because I remember some of my first behind the mirror experiences where we were using a strategic therapy and it was a lot of plotting and to come up with an intervention that would kind of shift the behavior of and there's nothing wrong with that but the plotting was always behind people's backs and it was sort of uh, uh, paradoxical interventions and I've seen a, uh, a movement uh, maybe with Michael White and with, with uh, a more open reflecting teams where the uh, I got to the point where everybody behind the mirror introduced themselves to the uh, clients at, at some point and we were much more open with uh, who who was making what suggestion and it became uh, I think a, a more humane collaborative therapy. Yeah, these more postmodern models that that took therapists not as expert anymore but therapist as a co-constructor and collaborator and change and the client is the expert you really saw that shift um, talk what it was like to be in such a, uh, you started your academic career at Purdue. Talk about the culture there, and we'll talk about our friend, the late, great Doug Sprinkle, in a, in a second, but talk about... I should the, also give credit uh, for seven years, I was at East Texas... Before, before Purdue. Before Purdue. Yeah, okay, yeah. talk talk about your, your journey into academia. Then, and you well, I've been lucky to make contact with people that have had influences on me, and Al Hovestad at East Texas State was a guy that was a colleague of mine, and uh, we, at some one point, got the largest grant in the history of East Texas State to work on rural mental health. And he was quite different from me, and we so our differences were, were good. And I think we developed a, a golden age of uh, family therapy within that little context. And I think I'd, we did the same thing at, at Purdue with Doug Sprinkle. And let's, let's talk about Doug. Um, the field lost Doug in August of 2018, and he had contributed so much, um, as you have, to both uh, education, research, and practice, I believe. Um, you're, if anybody's ever listened to Fred, he's quite a, a good storyteller, both in writing and in word, and he's got uh, a 
many good Doug stories, as we all do. And that's uh, Doug is the common factor that I wouldn't know Fred if it wasn't for Doug. I wouldn't know a lot of people in the field if it wasn't for Doug. So uh, what are your your biggest memories of uh, Doug Sprinkle? Yeah. We were both at his memorial service, so you know some of this. Uh, when I first came as an assistant professor, Doug suggested we have lunch together once a week. And uh, it was a nice gesture. And we talked about sports and uh, you know, football and politics and family and, and any number of things. And uh, it, those meetings turned into years, and we ended up writing a bunch of papers together and uh, a large grant we uh, collaborated on, presentations at national conferences. So uh, I think his uh, you know, openness of spirit and good nature invited me to, uh, to, 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 to be part of something that was very special. And uh, so the mentor part of Doug meant a lot to me. Um, and I also think that working a lot of times in my life hasn't felt much like working and so working with Doug was just a joy and uh, we a lot of good professional things came out of it yeah Fred much like Doug is very modest but yes their their level of productivity both individually and together uh, was really an amazing time um, to be there at Purdue how do you think the field should remember Doug I mean you eulogized him uh, professionally and personally but when the field thinks about Doug Sprinkle or, or students that are just in school now or haven't even come along when they look back and see that name, how do you want him to be remembered? Well, I'll give you some specific uh, academic uh, aspects and then I'll talk a little more personally. Academically, he'll be known as one of the developers of the circumplex model. He'll be known as one of the people that uh, really brought common factors forward in marriage and family therapy, as, as you would attest to that. Uh, I think when I looked at all the Facebook comments about Doug's life, uh, Susan Regas said that Doug was one of the warmest, kindest people that, that she'd ever met. And I think that people mostly remembered his taking time for them and his, uh, you know, celebrating their successes. And um, so I think there's going to be a, the fact that there's so many of Doug's students have become directors of marriage and family therapy programs or have been ec experts in the field in their own right. Uh, I think that's a big legacy. Yes, well, well said. Uh, another parallel that you and Doug had is both being uh, editor of our flagship journal, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, JMFT. Um, I want to know, I want to ask you about that too, but how has research over the years shaped the MFT profession from when you started um, to where you are now? I think research has gotten much better, and I, we're getting much more sophisticated in terms of the types of research that we do, and much more focused on uh, outcomes in family therapy, whereas the research was often about how families interact, and it didn't really relate as much to family therapy. I think the research has gotten a lot better. Uh, you, I know uh, you were thinking when, before we talked about this, uh, well, how has research shaped family therapy education? And not as much as we would like, because uh, one of my students did a review of the literature on family therapy education. And uh, there were really no uh, randomized clinical trials and very little that we know 
uh, about the components of family therapy education that are effective or not effective. Um, so I, and I can understand why, because people will pay to know what cure what cures depression or what helps you know teenage substance use, but they they're not going to pay to see what educational uh, approaches work better than others necessarily. Right. It's interesting to us uh, as educators, yeah. but uh, it's not where the dollars are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, talk about the experience of, I don't know if you aspired to be the editor of a Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, but I, or just because you were such a, a good researcher and writer yourself that was kind of thrust on you, but how did that happen about, what, eight years ago, right? Yes, I think Doug had been an editor before that, and other people that I really valued had become more editors. And I spent so much of my time working with uh, bright graduate students and helping them get through the dissertation and often writing an article or two with them about their dissertation research and of course my own writing with Doug also included a lot of we edited each other's stuff and I think um, I think it it was a skill set I can't say there's a million skill sets that I was good at but I think I was pretty good at uh, supporting the success of other people in particularly in writing I've uh, gave a workshop every year for about 20 years at AMFT about writing for publication. So it's something I know about, and then being the editor allowed me to, uh, it was a wonderful experience because I also got to know the field more generally, not just the people that I would work most closely with, but people all over the place, and um, asking a lot of them, both as reviewers and as writers, uh, but being very pleased that they usually came through. Uh, if you can't tell by now, uh, kind of humility is one of Fred's strong suits, but he won't tell you he substantially, at, at a low point in the journal, came back and took it over and raised the impact factor, which is how we measure the success of an academic journal, to unprecedented levels. And But I will say the, the best thing about Fred is someone that has had both acceptance and rejections. And Fred, had, Fred writes the nicest rejection letter of any <laughs> editor I've ever had. And not just that. Uh, it's not just me saying this. You can ask countless other um, uh, MFT academics that uh, even in Fred's reviews, even if it was a no, the the no and the comments would be so diligent and nice that it would help you revise and make a better effort. Um, so it was really one of your strengths. And um, I'm wondering what you what you learned most about that time um, the, during your editorship. It's a great question. I think there's a connection between what we do in therapy, which I think part of what we do is we say the unsayable. We bring up issues that need to be discussed in a a, a way that people can hear them, and that's kind of the way I tried to write my. It it is a parallel process, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, uh, there were some difficult times or people who were well known who didn't take rejection well but generally that's not the case I think that uh, and I, I would often get somebody really loved the article somebody thought oh it's okay and then somebody absolutely hated it so in the final analysis there was some truth to every, every one of those pe- uh, people and I could write a, a letter that emphasized what needed to be fixed and also what was good and then I finally, you often make a decision on what the backlog is and what the, how important the article is. And, um, so, uh, 
I, I didn't have any trouble. I thought maybe I'd have trouble making decisions, but I didn't. You, yes, you were actually able to mention the backlog. You were able to kind of uh, not only give those diligent reviews, but speed things up to eliminate the backlog under your tenure. You developed things like the virtual issues, which were great for both um, researchers and clinicians alike. They wanted to know more about uh, certain content areas, but um, that was a really a, a nice part of your career. And while you were doing that, you were also a department head. Talk about you know, sometimes MFTs are housed in different units or in multidisciplinary units. Talk about your experience at Virginia Tech when you left Purdue, not only as um, um, a full professor, but also as a department head. Well, I, th I wonder if the further you get away from something, the, the better it looks. But I, <laughs> I actually look back on my department head time as pretty good. I, I think the trick is if you... Uh, look at it only in terms of your own success, it's not so hot because your job is to uh, make sure other people are successful. And uh, so I developed uh, kind of initiatives or uh, grant proposal contests and things that would allow people to get money and be successful. And, uh, and there were some people who were much better teachers than they were researchers and finding a place for them so that they could uh, be appreciated. And I, oh, I will say this. I wrote a teeny article for the Family Therapy Networker once about it, it, uh, the skills of being a family therapist in, uh, in uh, administration. And I remember one would be uh, not to get triangled into uh, arguments where one person would tell me about another person and I would get them to talk to each other and I would be able to and I, that's all about family therapy, be able to handle, not take personally, people screaming at me. <laughs> and uh, in a department, not, uh, there's a lot of good that goes on, but uh, there's also people feeling one down or uh, feeling like somebody's encroaching on their area. And so being a being a family therapist department head made, made some sense. Yes, yeah. Um, favorite thing you've ever written, Fred? Oh... I know. I told you I was going to surprise you with some, some questions. I think it might have been um, there was a reflection piece in which Doug and I and Volker, who, who was at Virginia Tech too, and Lisa Fontes reflected on our, our lives and our careers and how the two came together. I think some of the stuff that I've written about uh, my work in Indonesia, I, I loved uh, being a, on a sabbatical for a year learning uh, participatory action research and then writing with Volker an article in that area. So I'm not sure that was ever cited that much, but it was something that I believed in and got excited about. It's certainly the, the things a lot of times that resonate, kind of like pivotal moments in therapy, what the, yeah. the client thinks is uh, uh, the most important part of a session was meaningful is very different than what the, the therapist thinks and much like in your writing career and what uh, maybe didn't get the most downloads or references um, is still very meaningful, uh, and you gave a you give a, a good example of that. Who do you admire currently in the field, and what what do you think the emerging trends will be, Fred, moving forward, both education um, and research as far as MFT? I'm writing the article on the future of family therapy uh, for the uh, four-volume handbook that's coming out soon. By the AMFT, yes. Yeah, by AMFT. And, and uh, Karen Wampler is the overall editor of it, I believe. So I've thought a lot about that. So uh, in terms of 
where the future is going? Is that generally yeah. the question you want? Oh, um, I had student students ask me recently. They said, "Well, I, I had somebody say that there was a good feeling about the direction of family therapy, and somebody else didn't think so." And um, so, my f- reflection on that was. When I entered the field, I think there were three states that had licensure in marriage and family therapy. All states have licensure right now. Family therapists, people didn't really know what they were. Now they're uh, recognized by by most parts of the government. And um, there's, I don't know, whatever it is, close to 50% of presenting problems in mental health clinics have some family systemic component to it, yet a lot of the people in those clinics have no or maybe one course in family therapy. So the education of family therapists is, is alive and well, and it's expanding. Uh, I know this uh, handbook is going to have uh, chapters on uh, family therapy in medical settings or with medical presenting problems uh, around social justice, around uh, uh, policy issues, uh, just uh, it doesn't stop. So, and it's not magic. We're not talking about some thing out there. We're talking about the the fact that uh, uh, family is a, a central part of, of all of our lives, and uh, it's a real easy sell when I talk to, to different cultures, different uh, different countries about family therapy because almost everybody. Um, values the family and what we're simply doing is figuring out ways to leverage family interactions the power of the family in that, in bringing uh, around change uh, not just for the pre- presenting person but for all family members and so it's uh, how can that not be going uh, well in the future because families are are going to remain central to people's lives and some people, it's it's a way of getting access to them. It's a way of changing the family system, even if they don't want to be part of that, uh, you know, that change. And so I think on a general, just conceptual basis, uh, family therapists are going to continue to be appreciated. And you can see how they're being uh, hired in a variety of areas right now. So... So I'm positive. I think there's some issues that I would say it would be nice to change some things. I think that there's some people have developed uh, models or programs and had developed kind of a business strategy where only uh, people who have a lot of money can get trained in those particular uh, modalities. I'd like to see family therapy be a little bit more uh, available uh, to everybody. Yeah, if it's proprietary, then then it can't be... uh um, you know the people that need to to use it and to spread it can't can't get to it. Um, yeah, families will always have issues. Therapists will always be on in need. Um, when you think of MFT doctoral programs, which you have been associated with, what do you think is the future of MFT doctoral education? Um, it's we need people to be training family therapists. We need people to be doing good research. And one of the challenges is that many people that go into family therapy have a, a therapist's heart, and they they want to want to help people. But we also need to kind of expand our 
recruiting to bring people in that have a passion for for research and for statistics and for uh, for policy. And I think that the field will change, will figure that out. And, uh, and I'm, I think already doing it in some way. Yeah, we we shouldn't have to farm our research. You know, clinical research on couples and families should be done by a couple and family therapist. Um, certainly you have mentored many students and even though you are humble and modest your students are very loyal to you and you can connect the who's who in the MFT world through Fred Piercy and Doug Sprinkle for that matter tell us some of the you can tell some stories you're a good storyteller but tell us the biggest lessons you've learned from your students uh, over the years uh, and I know they've taught you as, as much as you've taught them oh uh. I'm proud of where my students are. A long time ago, I was teaching uh, a student who was uh, had some physical disabilities and really couldn't uh, speak very well and and had some some strange movements and would uh, write these essays as part of the class. And it was a uh, they were wonderful. They were terrific, and they reflected a you know, a beauty in this person and the person's vision. And so I I think that, I, re, I remember that. So I, sometimes what you see isn't what you get. So I, I think it's really important to look, uh, look beyond the surface. And uh, so, I mean, that's, I guess that's the lesson. Yeah, a great lesson. And not much like the therapy is, is kind of failure driven. Uh, no one comes in and, and learning to be a clinician does it right the first time. And, and I think, you know, being a student, especially a doctoral student or creating research is a, a lot the same. And I think uh, your mentorship style, probably being patient in that way and seeing diamonds in the rough has probably uh, uh, helped many people. Uh, Let me mention yeah, sure. a, a couple of studies that have been done recently at Virginia Tech and I uh, about what are kind of peak experiences in in training and uh, and we uh, students of mine have done this in relationship to uh, uh, experts in the field field people who have won uh, teaching awards and also a uh, hundred and some students from various do- uh, masters and doctoral programs asking them what their uh, most impactful important uh, uh, training was and what was really bad training for them and it's about half of the things you could kind of come up with on a sheet of paper, but it, it really reminded me of the importance of tying research to practice. And uh, I remember a developmental psychology professor one time who came in with such enthusiasm for what he did. That enthusiasm was just uh, contagious. And I think that uh, that's true in family therapy education. Uh, uh, the students... And the experts talked about how bad any kind of education can be if it's kind of as what Doug Sprinkle would call is dust bowl empiricism, where it's ideas that aren't tied to uh, practical uh, aspects of people's lives. And so the, the degree to which a family therapist can uh, engage bring students along in a way that it makes sense to them and they can get excited about the field. It's still a pretty exciting place to be. And related to that, you've also, throughout your long career, have been very active with AMFT, including uh, 
two stints on the national board? Yeah. Yeah. What uh, do you think in the Commission on Accreditation? Yes. Um, Talk about what you see, the importance of belonging to a professional association. As you know, there's about 50,000 marriage and family therapists in the country. Only half of those belong to the MFT. I'm someone that believes you have to belong to something. And and if you want this profession uh, to remain, remain, especially as a standalone discipline, talk about your experience with AAMFT and and where you think that is headed. Um, My belief is... Uh, in several ways, the association is important to the people that are listening to this. One is it's a trade guild, too, where uh, a lot of psychologists and social workers and psychiatrists are doing some family therapy, and there's nothing wrong with that because, again, it's, it's not a, a thing. It's making new use of uh, the power of the family. But there's also a, an emerging, and actually we've pretty much arrived, profession in family therapy, and AAMFT is the uh, the group that supports that profession and makes sure is that licensing licensing laws and uh, certification processes are in place to uh, to, to see the growth of the, of the field. So uh, that I like. I also think that someone once said that it's better to be on the inside knowing what's going on than to be on the outside. It's and being a I don't know a marble being bounced around. So being uh, taking your place. Uh, in governance is fun, and uh, you get a real close view of what's happening. And I know your service, obviously, uh, uh, any service to AMFT, whether you're uh, uh, involved in a local division, or what we know as division, or a new topical interest network, or you serve on a national board, is very important. Talk about the role of service in your career, Fred, because you've also had... Uh, really many different and cool service opportunities and and talk about how your your favorite memories from the service aspect of your career hmm. I, I think that if I maybe I've just kind of been dropped into it but I always feel like what I do I can find fun fun in and I think uh, service is the same way and I, I should speak about what I'm doing right, right yes now. right now tell them uh, not something I looked into or I retired and my wife and I have been having uh, we get an A on retirement so far in terms of travel and, and fun things I have some, spent some time with you and your wife and yes you you were you were sucking the marrow out of life so to speak <laughs> and enjoying everything and that includes staying active yeah. uh, physically but I also think kind of mentally and creatively and being stimulated that way tell our listeners what you're doing now very cool well, I was invited to be a part of a group, uh, including the developers of various models for uh, adolescents with substance abuse disorders in Vienna, Austria. The United Nations brought us together with the idea that there is significant research that supports family therapy in developed countries, in, in the United States and UK and others. But how do we get the, the power of family therapy to low-income countries, to Uh, individuals that uh, don't have access to that kind of information. So we're we're in the process of uh, developing uh, a training model. It's really a a pilot model. And then uh, doing some pilot training. And I I was the the trainer last week in uh, Indonesia to work with uh, experts from Laos and Cambodia, Vietnam, 
Philippines, Thailand, and uh, I know I'm forgetting somebody, <laughs> and Indonesia, that's right. And uh, that itself personally was wonderful because it was a, a great opportunity to be uh, doing something that I think can make a difference uh, across the world. Uh, I guess that's a service event. It's not something I looked uh, into doing. I was sort of, uh, Tracy Todd said, so how did you get involved in this? And I, my answer was that evidently one of the uh, UN folks read Monica Bogoldrick's book and found a chapter of me uh, talking about how to work with Indonesians. So some of my interest in cross-cultural uh, and, and cultural issues sort of got me into this particular project, and then one thing led to another. And, it's, uh, it, and then the, this is also a metaphor for other parts of my life where, geez, I, I, if I hadn't have written an article or gotten involved with a grant, I wouldn't have been invited to be in Indonesia. I wouldn't have been able to be invited back again and again. And then somebody wants me to go to the Philippines. And what a wonderful career. And it's uh, been r relatively serendipitous. I, it's not something I could have plan, but something that just simply happened. It's also really cool that you talk about if, you know, your work should be fun, and you're clearly having fun doing it, and it's almost like bringing the power of family therapy, which you've known for a long time, uh, bringing it to people that are discovering it for the first time, which must be a really unique feeling, too. It, it is, and well, just this last week with, um, I don't know, a quarter of the participants were uh, uh, physicians, so they are in a place to make things happen and they're unbelievably bright but they don't have the background or the knowledge of uh, how to uh, engage families in a way that we would call family therapy and so I I think maybe a big challenge in the future is the internationalization of family therapy not the way Americans do it because we had a lot of conversations about well this makes some sense, but in my country, we would probably uh, make these kind of changes to it. So rather than, it's not a cookie-cutter approach, that's for sure, but engaging different groups in terms of how to uh, make the best use of family therapy using, I don't know, cultural li liaisons, uh, I'm very interested in that. Uh, where will your next trip take you to for the UN? Not sure. Could be anywhere, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. And you, you're enjoying doing it. You still want to continue doing it. Uh, yeah, to a, to a, to an extent. I also want to. I, I love retirement, so uh, I seem to be staying involved in small ways in the, in the field, and it's meant a lot to me. When you when you think of well, that, can be you know, could read your articles and. Uh, see who you've worked with and who you've influenced uh, and by directional influence, but what's something about you that cannot be captured in a textbook or a, a journal article that our listeners uh, need to know to understand the essential core of Fred Piercy? I know that uh, when uh, Susan and I went to Doug's uh, house, uh, not that long ago, we were hiking with him a year ago, and uh, he he said something about us uh, seeming to have fun. And uh, and somebody else, I guess, when I went back for uh, a twenty or thirty year reunion at uh, my university, somebody said I forgot your the belly laugh that you have. So I I think and uh, uh, Mar Margaret uh, 
uh, Kylie has said that too. So I think I uh, there's a uh, there is kind of a an impish Fred <laughs> and a, and uh, a, a, one that kind of enjoys a variety of things. I'm in a bunch of book groups right now and uh, involved with uh, you know staying fit and. Um, so I, I think that my life's going to continue. Yeah, I see you as a kind of a lifelong learner and in, engaging fully in what, whatever you take on, you know, certainly even outside of the domain of MFT, um, which is the last question when I've been interviewing people like you, similar stature and longevity in the field, always ask a question, which I think would be hard for you because you are so humble, some of the more... Uh, uh, proud model developers don't have a problem answering this last question, but uh, I want to know what do you want your professional legacy to be and what do you want to be remembered for the most? Um, I think similar to what I said, Doug uh, will be remembered for to have taken time and to brought out the, the best in my students and when they're successful, I'm successful. I think it's uh, simply and eloquently said, and I, I think you will certainly be remembered that way. Um, but I can't thank you enough for for joining us, and uh, I really appreciate uh, Fred and I did not work together. I, I did my doctoral work at Purdue after Fred had already left um, to go to Virginia Tech, but I feel fortunate to know Fred uh, through Doug and to have Fred as a, a mentor um, professionally and academically as as he's affected countless other people so i'm glad we were able to spend some time together today my friend and and thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast i'd say what do you want to promote but uh you're you're well into your retirement and and enjoying that but anything else any final words i would give you the final words so i get a chance to promote a book or a, <laughs> no i'm not the, uh I, I appreciate this experience and this opportunity with you, and uh, it, it feels it feels good. I, I thank you for the time. Thank you, Fred. You know the phrase "a gentleman and a scholar" is sometimes overused, but truly that fits Dr. Fred Piercy, uh, one of the most humble, soft-spoken, and just generally nice people you'll ever meet. He did amazing things in his career. He was beloved, and you can really tell what he did for the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. As I said during the interview, uh, even the, the papers I got rejected uh, made me a better writer. And you know, if you could ever feel good about reject being rejected, certainly that was Fred. If you want to know more about writing from the expert himself, writing for publication, and you need some CEUs, boy, we have something for you. Go to www.aamft.org under the Enhanced Knowledge tab. You'll see online education and training, and that's where the online platform Tenio is, where you can get all your continuing education credits, and you type in Piercy or even Fred, and you can get Demystifying Writing for Publication. It's a workshop from AMFT that he gave for many years uh, for all those who wish to be successful in writing for publication in MFT. They just mystify the publication process as well as the thinking skills necessary uh, for potential authors to be published. It's a, a seat at the table at a master class with a master editor and writer. So many people talk and connect Fred to Doug Sprinkle, 
And as I've mentioned on the podcast from time to time, there has been no bigger influence in my professional career from Doug Sprinkle. There would be no AAMFT podcast, was it not for Doug Sprinkle. It was his passing last year, and uh, along with his and the loss of other pioneers and legends of our field that made me go to AMFT and put this idea together to document uh, the people that have made a difference in our systemic field of couple and family therapy. You know, Doug was uh, not only a bridge between MFT's past and present, but his transcendent work united the field around the commonalities that bind us together as systemic thinkers and relational healers. I was fortunate enough to meet Doug really late into his career and really early into mine. He was in a place in his life where he was generous and generative with both his time and his knowledge. And I was blessed to sit under the shade of his learning tree for 15 years. And Doug would start and end nearly every conversation with the clause, my friend. And I'm positive he did this with more than just me. But he and I didn't make it any less special or genuine each time he did it. That was Doug. More than any of his vast accomplishments in academia, his students remember Doug fondly for his humility and his way of making each of them feel extraordinary, even if they were merely ordinary. Doug Sprinkle was influential in the career development of some of our professionals' greatest leaders, and he was a psychotherapeutic father figure for me at a time in my life when I needed it the most. He underpromised but overdelivered in his commitment to me, an investment that lasted long past my doctoral time. More than any publication or presentation we ever collaborated on over the years, our friendship is what I cherish the most. In fact, probably one of the biggest honors in my professional career was being chosen personally by Doug to speak at his retirement celebration in 212. I will forever cherish our last conversation. Doug, knowing that his time was limited, he was bold and brave in his words and emotions in a manner far different than his traditional modesty and endearing awkwardness. We were able to say how we truly felt about each other, and I hope every listener out there has the opportunity to have a similar experience with people who are special to them before they pass. Maybe you've had a Doug in your life. These people belong in a special category of their own. The souls who inspire and teach us to strive to become our best selves in all ways. We are blessed by their presence in our journey. Acknowledging their role in our personal development with gratitude keeps us humble, for we know that we owe them. And Doug, I owe you more than I could ever repay.